We often talk about the Bible as a book. We call it the good book. We track it on bestseller lists next to American Dirt. But the Bible is actually a whole bunch of books. The word Bible comes from the Latin word Biblia, like bibliography, or if you took high school French, bibliothèque. It's the 66 books that are approved for us to read during worship. So the Bible isn't one book. It's really an anthology of books. It's a collection of things that were put together by people long after the texts themselves were written. But even that isn't quite right. Because some of those 66 books are actually made up of multiple books that were kind of stapled together. Second Corinthians is a good example of that. It was a part about halfway through when the tone and the grammar changes. And we think, well, it's probably two letters that got stuck together and made into one. And today's reading that we heard from Isaiah is another one of those. Not two books, but actually three books that got compounded into one. Isaiah tells the story of Israel's exile from their homeland from three different angles. Each book has a different take on it. First Isaiah, the majority of the book, focuses on the prophecies about the impending exile. The Israelites are living amidst massive inequality and greed and indifference toward the needy. And Isaiah reminds them that their actions have consequences. Deutero-Isaiah, that's part two, focuses mostly on what happens when they're in exile. Isaiah promises that there is some hope that the covenant with God exists and they get to go home someday. In Trito-Isaiah, that's the third one, which we heard from today, focuses mostly on the experience of going home. The Babylonians are conquered by the Persians and King Cyrus, And when Cyrus sees all these Israelites who've been imprisoned, he says, I don't don't want to pay for all these people to be imprisoned. They can just go home, and they do. So that's the context for today's reading. This is from that last part. The Israelites go home, they repatriate, they do the thing they always wanted to do, and it turns out to be really complicated. So think about if your home was leveled. And then you came back and you had to figure out how you were going to live. That's the same situation for them. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is in ruins. The old communities are all torn apart. And so the people assume they must have done something wrong. This must be divine punishment. And they think that maybe if God looks favorably on us, if we show that we're remorseful for what we did wrong, then God will fix things. So they start fasting, they put on sackcloth, they lie around in ashes, and they hope that maybe God will see them and think, oh, they're really sorry about what they did, I'm going to make everything better and we can go back to normal. So they do this ritual, and they hope that things are going to change for them. But does anything change for them? No, of course not. So today's reading is a conversation between God and Isaiah about this fasting ritual they're doing. God calls Isaiah and says, shout out, do not hold back, but lift up your voice like a trumpet. So God's calling Isaiah over and saying, I need you to go talk to the Israelites for me. And then God describes the situation from the divine point of view. The Israelites say, why do we fast, but you don't see us? We humble ourselves, but you don't notice us. We do the ritual, we do the fasting, we do the right motions, but nothing seems to change. And how does God respond to them? God says, look, you serve only your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. 
Ye fast only to quarrel and to fight, to strike with a wicked fist. So in other words, you're fasting, but your fasting's not actually changing anything. You fast all day, but do you do anything with the food you're not eating? No, you just save it until tomorrow. You fast all day, but do you treat your workers better? No, you treat them the same as you do every other day. You fast all day, but do you treat your neighbors any better? No, you just argue with them the same way you do every other day of the week. And if you know that three-book model in your head, you can see part of Isaiah's argument on spooling here. God's saying the Israelites are doing the same things now that got their ancestors sent into exile. In Isaiah's mind, the people went into exile because they didn't honor their covenant with God. They didn't seek the welfare of their neighbors. And now that they've gone through that experience and come back, they're just doing the same thing all over again. So what God critiques here is ritual. But it's a very certain kind of ritual. It's a ritual that does nothing to help anyone besides the ego of the person who's doing the ritual. Does this prayer and fasting actually make anything better? No. It's just about this one person trying to get squared up with God so that their life gets a little bit better. Everyone complains that God isn't doing enough for me while they're not doing anything for the people around them. Now, we probably don't put on sackcloth. I don't see any of you wearing sackcloth. Few of us sit in ashes. Almost none of us actually fast anymore. But we engage in those same sort of self-serving rituals all the time. Things that are more about communicating something about ourselves than actually doing anything useful. The most insidious version of this is our constant turning to thoughts and prayers after some sort of calamity. Is there anything wrong with thoughts and prayers? No, of course not. They're great. The problem is they often get used to deflect from actual meaningful actions. Our culture has a sort of Christian outrage industrial complex that gets offended by people taking religious language out of the public sphere. So think about cashiers wishing you happy holidays or no more statues of the Ten Commandments at City Hall, that kind of thing. But what should actually give us concern, maybe even offend us, is not the removal of religious language, but the misappropriation of it by people who hold positions of public trust. The next time we have a mass shooting in this country, watch how the language of prayer gets used as a smokescreen to protect people from doing anything. You can even take today's reading, and everywhere it says fasting, replace it with offering your thoughts and prayers, and you can get the same basic idea. God said, look, you serve only your own interests by offering your thoughts and prayers. Thankfully, God offers the Israelites and us something better. God says there's nothing wrong with fasting. The problem is you're not fasting the proper way. Fasting isn't just about not eating or putting on sackcloth or wallowing around so other people see how pious you are. God says the fast that I choose is to loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. God's fast is to share your bread with the hungry to bring the homeless poor into your house, and to cover those who are naked. That's a fast that actually does something good for your neighbor. So you can see the problem here, it's really not about fasting. It's about how you think God is active in the world. 
The Israelites think that God is just like any other actor, any other force in the world. And you have to somehow cajole God down from heaven to intervene if things are going to get better. Isaiah imagines it differently. How does Isaiah put it? If you remove the yoke from among you, the point of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, the Lord will guide you continually. So whenever we ask why God allows something to happen, evil, sin, suffering, God's answer is, well, don't ask me. Why do you allow this to happen? The problem is less about why God allows something like evil than why it is that we allow it in the first place. And Isaiah's answer probably still holds true for us. It's just easier. It's comfortable. It's the way we're used to doing things. Things can't get better as long as you serve your own interest, and things can't get better as long as you strike with a wicked fist, God says. But there's also a more positive vision here, too which is that when we see a world that's in need of justice and redemption, we don't have to wait around in sackcloth or sit on our hands waiting for things to become perfect. When you're in a situation that seems morally complicated, when you think the world needs to drastically improve in some way, don't wait around for God to fix it. Get involved and take your sacred best guess. It's easy to feel powerless, like you can't make any difference in the world, And that's certainly what the profiles and cowardice who invoke thoughts and prayers want you to think. But God says you have more agency, more power, and more influence than they say. If you trust God's promise to work in and through you, redemption is possible. Isaiah says that if you trust in the Lord, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And that's how the kingdom of God gets built. Not by making things so bad that God has to intervene, but by trusting that God's promise comes to fruition in and through each one of us, brick by brick, foundation by foundation, and bridge by bridge. Amen.